Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to the founder of Truva, Alex Lazou. Truva is an online shopping platform that curates homeware, clothes, and gifts from independent sellers. Since we recorded, Alex is no longer part of Truva as it was purchased by Restore. What were you keen to find out about Alex? Uh, Alex has two co-founders, and I thought it was quite interesting that he believes there is quite an element of luck on finding a good partnership that actually works when you're in business. Um, What about you? What did you enjoy? It was interesting to find out that he was a coder first, because typically when I think about coders, they're not the most, this is a very broad statement, but they're not the most sociable uh, people in the world. But obviously he then moved to being a CTO and then CEO, which is almost the opposite. Uh, You have to be very, uh, very sociable and very outspoken and very extroverted a lot of the time to be a CEO. So it's interesting to learn about that story of progression. He also shared some really strong decompression techniques for separating both work and home life. Yeah, that's quite an interesting one about how he basically puts his life at risk to take his mind yeah. off work. We the can get into that. Danger the more danger, into, the better the more for Alex. Um, so uh, this is Alex. He is the founder and CEO of Truva. Enjoy. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. So to kick us off, do you want to tell us a little bit about your start in Cyprus and what it was that happened when you were growing up that potentially led to you wanting to become an entrepreneurial person? Sure. Um, so I'm Alex, obviously. I, I'm half German, half Cypriot. Um, so I was born in France, but then grew up in Cyprus. And I guess, I don't know, I never thought about building businesses and all that kind of stuff, but I did think, I did start tinkering uh, with code quite early on, whether that was back in the early days of MIRC, building scripts to uh, kind of do different things, or then later on going into website development and stuff. So it was quite, I don't know how I got into it, but it was just, it was empowering, I guess, being able to build stuff and actually having the ability to get a small website or something out there and seeing people use it. I think somehow that, uh, piqued my interest uh, so that's kind of where I started quite early on um, yeah that was the beginning I guess how did you discover code as something that you wanted to do as a hobby because that is not something that is at least not in the, the UK the case that all the kids want to be doing code and want to start building websites instantly that wasn't even it wasn't even a conversation when I was a kid so how did you even find <laughs> that no no I don't, I'm, I'm Quite old, I guess. Um, the, <laughs> it's really weird. I, I went to a bookshop with my dad. I think I was like 11, 12. And there, were, there was like the shelf with books in flash programming, like the early days of doing animations and stuff like that. And there were like these big circles, like balls on the, on the cover. I was like, I want this. My dad was like, well, what are you going to do with this? And I'm like, no, no I, want, I want this book. And I remember opening, like, I was just seeing those shapes and somehow, like, it, I was like, okay, I, I want to be able to do that. Um, it was a complete failure. Never got <laughs> to, like, <laughs> build anything to that. But I think that was kind of the beginning of, like, oh, so you write these words and then you get this thing on the other side. It was just back then, it was really hard to configure anything. Um, so that's where I started getting into 
writing scripts for chats, the early chat kind of world. Um, that was easy. You just had a console, you could write some stuff. Uh, I didn't really have that many resources, but I did have a friend of mine who was kind of a nerd uh, as well. Like, it, then you start kind of, it, when you have one more person next to you and you start building things and you're like, oh, this is actually working. I think that's, that's where it kind of starts. And yeah, it was weird. It was completely by chance. Yeah, for sure. I was going to say that almost just sounds like you accidentally discovered a book that eventually completely. led to you <laughs> starting yeah. uh, a business. Yeah. So there are people that code and there's people that have been introduced to that when they're younger. But that doesn't always mean that they're going to go on to start their own business. Mm. What was it that, where do you think you got that entrepreneurial spirit from? Was it from your parents or was it from something that you saw in your, uh, in your younger years? Yeah, I, I think it was more the satisfaction. I get my, the satisfaction from seeing people using something that I've built. Right? Or when I'm using something that I've built, that, that, is, that is the ultimate form of like, Ooh, that's cool. Right? That's what's the, the fun part, I guess, of it. Um, and I think that could be related also to like the people that decide to focus more on the need and how to generate value for someone versus on building something because it's just a work of art to write this piece of code. Those are two very different experiences. Um, and so I think that need of being able to build something that creates value for someone else or for myself and that I can actually feel that, that is just one step away from actually thinking about it from a business perspective as well, from like, okay, how do I now think about it commercially? How do I get it in front of as many people as possible? How do I build teams that then get inspired by my vision as well? So I think it, it's, it just, it starts with that underlying thing of like what makes you happy and what made me happy was to build something that someone was going to use and was going to get value from. But then um, when I started in Germany, I, I started computer science there. And that's when I started kind of like building mobile apps and iPad apps for pharmaceuticals and museums and, and those kinds of things in the early 2010, 2011. And there you go into negotiations straight away, right? Like it's how much are they going to pay for you to build this and what time frame and all that kind of stuff. So that's when you start to get a little bit more of a, a feel for um, negotiations and that kind of businesses and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think that's kind of where it's come from. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine it's a kind of rare blend of, of skill sets where you would think that the majority, and this may be just painting a blanket statement and I may be incorrect here, but I would imagine that the majority of people that are interested in code and that almost quite singular solo working style would also be quite introverted and maybe not want to have those sort of higher pressure conversations about negotiating rates or those business kinds of conversations. So do you almost think it's quite a unique that you had those two sides to you where you could like sit and solo work away at something but then you're quite happy to have those extroverted conversations with people that are willing to pay you for the work? I don't know. I think I, I'm not sure if it's related to extrovert or introvert. I think it's more part of it is being willing to go out of your comfort zone and being happy with with trying things that 
uh, you you're not necessarily kind of like <laughs> uh, predisposed to I guess. So when when I then from Germany went to London to the LSE to do my masters, I actually joined a startup back then that was 2012 in the business development team, and they didn't know that I could code. They had no idea, right? And so it was like a social networking kind of play. And I, I, I had to go to university campuses and kind of get people interested in that. That is not my thing. Like, I'm not an extrovert. Like, I'm not a natural extrovert. I'm not a loud person. Like, I don't like that much to be out there or whatever. That is not my natural thing. I, I love doing it, but like, it's not me unnecessarily. So I, I guess it's more what drives your immediate satisfaction? What are the things that you, you really love doing? And then how far do you want to take it? And how far do you, are you willing to lean yourself out of the window in order to actually get there? I think that combination uh, is what perhaps takes you into a different route from a very strong engineer uh, to perhaps someone that goes down the line of like, no, actually, I want to do my own thing. Because I, I can totally see that I'm one who hates talking to people about grades and therefore automates everything so that they don't have to have that direct discussion themselves. Like, and that's kind of where you've seen the SaaS world go and all that kind of stuff. You rarely talk to people anymore. You just get it done, clicked, and that's <laughs> all it. Um, so obviously now you're, you're building apps. You've been to um, university in Germany and the world of apps and digital platforms is vast there's a huge number of things that you could have done i don't know my history of e-commerce platforms very well but i'm assuming at this time amazon shopify platforms like this exist currently so where did your idea for truva as a platform originate mm. and and what where did you feel that it's slotted into that that market yeah so I, I have never really worked in a company straight after my master's in London. I joined Entrepreneur First, which is effectively a program for people that have perhaps a technical or scientific background who want to build their own businesses, but have no idea how to do that. I was in the first cohort of that. Um, and through that, I met a couple of uh, guys that were coming out of private equity who were very much into investing in retail companies and like really deep in the retail market and understanding like what are the characteristics of the market now where is it going and all that kind of stuff so those two were coming out of private equity and, and they were thinking about okay there is so much inventory available but no one is actually it's not really available it's locked down in the physical space and there is no digital footprint of that so how can we build propositions on, on top of that so that we can free it up and unlock its value to people? So that, that was kind of like what they were looking at. And so they were looking for someone technical who could actually help them build it. And that's where I came into the picture. I did not intend to get into retail at all. Like I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I was just playing around with things. But what piqued my interest was this idea of being able to pinpoint inventory in physical spaces. Because when you think about, for example, OpenTable, the reason it exists is because it has a very accurate representation of the inventory in terms of tables and seats 
so that people can then book those tables and, and go to the, to, to the venue, right? But when you go into retail, especially back then, it was completely fragmented. Like even John Lewis and others was the advent of click and collect, but they weren't able to really do that because they didn't really know what they had in their shops in the first place. They would ship things from the warehouse into the shops so that you could do click and collect, even though those products already existed there. I guess the, the one that was amazing in that regard was Argos, but everyone else, which is basically mini warehouses, right? Um, but everyone else was, was very, very far behind. And I think that hasn't changed that much, to be honest. Like, I think inventory accuracy is still in big uh, chains is, is quite low when it comes to like, the actual physical location. So thinking about that and, and thinking about you know, this network of digital inventory and how you can then make it transactionable, that is where I was like, okay, this is, this is pretty cool. Uber was coming at that time as well. So you had a lot around like on-demand delivery and all that kind of stuff. And how can you do it if you don't have live inventory data? So is there maybe a play there? So there, there were a lot of things happening at that point where I really thought, okay, there's enough there in terms of a technical challenge on the one hand side, but then on the other hand, in terms of actually building valuable experiences, there must be something there. Uh, and that's kind of where it all started. So for those who are listening who actually might not be aware yet, would you be able to summarize what Truva is as a platform? Sure. Um, so Truva is effectively a platform that enables premium lifestyle boutiques. So small shops, concept stores, um, spaces that have a distinctive taste and style that bind certain brands that reflect that style and have real physical inventory in their stores to open up that inventory to anyone in the world who wants to buy their products. Uh, what does that mean? That means that you can buy a home accessories item or a fashion item from a small boutique that is in Copenhagen at the same time uh, as you're browsing inventory from a small shop in Berlin and a concept store in Shoreditch. That experience for us is a curated retail experience, right? Like these are people that are choosing products based on a distinctive taste and style. We have quite a high quality threshold on which shops we allow on our platform. We want to make sure that those shops have uh, that taste and are curating brands that reflect that so that you can always see new things coming from those shops. Sometimes it helps to compare. So for example, you have Farfetch in the luxury fashion space, which operates on a, well, at least started in a similar space of finding all the, the greatest, I guess, luxury fashion boutiques and opening that up to anyone in the world who wants to buy luxury fashion. Uh, and on the other hand, you have like, obviously the Shopify's of the world that actually build the technology so that anyone can sell stuff effectively. Um, so we sit somewhere in the middle. We do, we take care of the logistics. We take the payments. We try to standardize the experience as much as possible. And we bring the customer to the shop, right? Like we market the products and so on and so forth, but the shops are the ones that are fulfilling the products. So. At the start of every business story, I think there's, there's well, in your case, there's, there's multiple founders in your case. And I think it's the same with us, it, with a lot of people. There are more than just one person involved. And I think for a lot of the listeners who are, who are going to be listening to this episode, they might have already met their founder. They already have a relationship. Some of them maybe haven't met their founder yet. They don't know what their business is. For you, it was you, Mandeep and Glenn, wasn't it? So early days back in 2013, when we initially started, it was myself, Mandeep and Maxim. 
Right. Uh, Maxim then, after a couple of years, moved back to Sweden, and then uh, Glenn joined us. He was coming out of one fine stay on the other side, um, so there, there there was some movement on that side as well. Yeah. Right. And and how did you guys meet? I think one of the questions we get asked a lot is, you know, how do you meet a business partner? How do you meet a, a co-founder? Like they, they they seem almost impossible to meet the right person. Um, how did you guys meet? I think it seems impossible because I. Did, I think there is an element of luck involved. There, there certainly is, right? But obviously luck also, uh, it doesn't come by itself. Like when you're out there talking to people, having conversations, digging deeper and asking people for intros, then you will meet more people and therefore the likelihood of you finding the right person for you uh, increases. So the way we met was we, we had a common um, kind of friend uh, they were looking, Mandeep and Maxim were looking for someone more technical. He just made the intro. And to be honest, at that point, I guess there's also an element of I was 24 years old coming out of uni. Well, I give it a shot. Why, why not? You know, like it's, there's a little bit of that as well. I think there's, there's a lot more structure around it now. Like people are thinking, okay, let's, you know, do a bit of a trial, like uh, do founder speed dating and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes just taking a shot and seeing where it takes you, you know, like there's an element of that as well. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it's a really good point about a lot of it is just lucky um, or in our case, yeah. really unlucky because we, you know, we wouldn't do this again. Would we? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. This is yeah. a joke. Um, so you've, you, found, you found Mandeep and was it Maxim? And then yeah. Maxim left, Glenn joins. Mm-hmm. And when, when you start Truva, initially you started in a CTO sort of CPO role, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the funny thing about startups, right? You take the CTO role, but it's effectively just you building code and doing the designs and the product and all that kind of stuff. And uh, your CMO uh, is doing all the actual marketing campaigns and generating the content and all that kind of So, yeah, I, I, effectively, I started as the person in the team that had the core responsibility of figuring out how we're going to build this from a technical perspective and how are we going to deliver user journeys that make sense to our customers. Uh, Mandeep at that point was more on the marketing side of things and then uh, Maxim was more on kind of like the business development of finding the actual shops and signing them up, I think, if I remember correctly. So we had some distinct responsibilities and then you have like your responsibility as a founder overall as well where i think that is is kind of like all the things that you have to do or you want to be part of as a founder building a business whether that is how we hire people and what is our culture like who are we Mm. (laughs) uh like that kind of like really deep exercise of like who do we want to be and and what do we want to stand for all the way to fundraising and all that kind of stuff i think early days especially in startups everyone is involved and everyone helps out for sure it's just interesting hearing you talking about the who are we because i feel like that's something that i think maybe this is more for this any startups listening you focus so much on that at the start about because you there's this romantic idea of the business who you want to be how you want to be perceived by the market and i think it's appropriate to spend a certain amount of time on doing that but i know that it's changed so much over three years for us and i was just wondering what that was like in your experience did you spend a lot of time figuring that out at the start and then you realized that you've 
sort of cemented that years later? Yeah, I think, well, I think there's a huge part of just figuring out how to actually figure out who you are and who you want to be. Because like, of course, there are exercises out there and like there's tons of frameworks that you, you can use and all that, but it is so true that it is different for every single company and it's different because you have different personalities who think in different ways and you have to find the way for us to communicate, right? So there's, there's some truths about who we are that we were from day one and we still are to this day and, and those are things that we will never let go and we never have let go, even in the worst times, which is that fundamentally we believe in empowering independence we believe in doing our best and sometimes it might not be enough but doing our best to help those individuals who have a great taste in the style and aesthetic and should have a much bigger audience but are just hidden because they don't have the scale right and they are getting overshadowed by the big chains that do have the scale and have the marketing abilities and have the funds behind like that is fundamental to who we are and that that is deep into everything we do right and, and Sometimes, you know, it might not be enough. Again, like you will have to take hard decisions, but you can't let go of that fundamental principle because at that, if, you, if you let that go, then you are tearing out the soul of the business and that's when you lose trust from everyone. Like no one believes you anymore for what you're saying. And so whilst at hard times we had to take hard decisions, it was always about like we need to continue helping independent shop owners that have a beautiful selection of inventory, a great taste and style and aesthetic to reach the audience that they should be reaching by giving them the scale to do so. So those kind of, that, that thing I think has remained over the last 10 years that we've been building the business. But then everything else, we change as people as well. You know, I'm not the same uh, person I was in 2013. Uh, and I think that that change also means that there are things that will change in terms of like your values, how you think about culture, what, are, what is important to you, depending on who is there as well and all that kind of stuff. So it's important to do those exercises, but I agree with you, spending a ton of time figuring that out day one and then you'll have to change it again after 6, 12, 18 months and so on and so yeah. forth. And, um, it also goes with the number of people you have. Like if you're like five, six, different story. When you reach 15, that's the first point. When you get to 50, that's the second point. North of 100, that's the third point. I haven't gone north of 500, so I don't know. Uh, but that's another thing that is important to bear in mind as well. Well, I could talk about that topic all day because <laughs> that is, yeah, there's there's loads that goes into that. Uh, but what you mentioned there about how you know people change as the business matures and, and um, there's different changes required. That links was really nicely back to what we were talking about before, where you, you know you started as this CTO, CPO role. Later down the line, you moved into a CEO role. Mm. What was the cause of that change? It was, I guess, so I started as CTO, CPO, team of one building and designing and kind of like getting the product live and all that. Then I basically build a team around me of people, engineers, product designers, product managers, and so on and so forth, that helped me kind of build out the platform from their own words. And then at some point, part of it was, 
I guess mindset as well, like I like streamlining stuff. I like processes that get streamlined. I like efficiencies. I, li I like to strip off noise. I don't like noise. I, I like the noise to be stripped off. I can deal with the noise and the uncertainty and stuff. That's fine. But I do like to look at it as a Tetris almost game. So sometimes there is a role that you really need to start uh, kind of pulling through. And that's when I got more involved on the operational side of the business, logistics, all that kind of stuff. And then as part of the funding run we did in 2019, I effectively took over as uh, the CEO, end of that, as the CEO of the business, which was, again, like we grow, we change, all that kind of stuff. And uh, my co-founder at that point also just had his first child. So it was, you know, uh, personal circumstances as well. Uh, but for me, it was a, a new big challenge. And when you're around for like 10 years, you want to continuously, even as a founder, especially as a founder, you want to continuously see your role evolve and, and kind of take on new challenges or else you get stayed and then you run out of ideas and then it's probably a good time to go. We've got to this point now. I mentioned that that was the uh, moment where you took investment into the business. We did. We we took investment into the first time we took investment into the business was in 2013. So in the first year, the business was running, and then over the years we raised capital every couple of years. So the last bigger round that we did was in 2019. Yeah. And what was I guess one the the reason for going for investment? That's a big question. A lot of uh, our listeners and people that we know ask. You know, when's the right time? Why do you do it? And then once you've made that decision. Who do you go to? Who do you go to and ask, oh, I'm thinking of raising this amount of money. You know, where do you get it from? And what's that process like? Because it sounds, for anyone who's not taken investment, outside looking in, sounds stressful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, you know, the, the reason why we did it was just because the type of business we were building was a business that required, and we knew that from the very beginning, it would require very big amounts of capital to make it successful. Fundamentally, marketplaces, the game is pretty simple, but extremely complicated as well. So the end game is you get to a critical mass where every pound that drops down and comes through drops to the bottom line and is profitable. Until you get there, you need a critical mass of supply and a critical mass of demand where the two effectively feed each other and start growing. Initially, you have to invest in both in order to keep them growing until they get to that point where they feed each other. As long as you're not on that point, you are eating the cost. How, how does that look like practically? Right? So for example, a shop uploads a product on our platform, a customer buys that product. The logistics happen through us, so we have the integrations with the carriers. The more volume we're doing, the better deals we get with the carriers on the logistics cost for every order, right? So at the beginning, we were losing a lot of money on every single transaction because we just didn't have the volumes. But you had to do that because the alternative would be that the shop closes, goes to the post office, ships the item, and you don't get a tracking URL or anything. And then you hope for the best that the customers actually receive the item, which was our right. first Christmas, 
right? So in everything you do, in all the user journeys and flows, there is an example like that where more scale brings better profitability and therefore at some point you're flying. But until you get to that point, you need a lot of cash. And that, that's, that's what happens typically with marketplace, except if you decide that you want to have a very slow journey into the future where you're slowly, slowly, slowly growing and at some point it gets there and there, there are entrepreneurs that go down that line. In our case, we were, you know, we were of the mindset of like, nah, we need to get this thing big very, very quickly. So we're just going to raise cash straight away. So that's when we did our, our first round. I think it was 750 or something like that from some big VCs in 2013. Now, 750 in 2013 for a seed round was not like it was it, it was not a big amount, but it wasn't a small round either. Mm-hmm. Like Series A was like two, three million marks, you know, uh, whereas now things are a little bit different as well. So that's 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 our like that's kind of the mindset that we had. And then you get into the that kind of like game, right? Yeah. Because you make promises, you take the money in and then you utilize that funding in order to then get to the next milestone that is again going to give you more funds that then is going to take you right. to the next milestone and so on and so forth. So you, you are on the back foot in a certain sense as long as you're kind of like dependent on that extra external capital to be able to power your operations. And also to me, it sounds like Truva took a harder route because you're a marketplace you're not a retailer so you're you're not mm. you're not taking in you know you know you're not buying products in and, and and listing them and doing it that way did you have a challenge where you had to build tech where you were on board in these third parties you had to actually go and find yeah. and source them which is another cost so that sounds doubly difficult like how did that work <laughs> the challenge is obviously that you have to build all the tech you have to find these retailers you have to get them on board you have to get their inventory on board you have to get the right quality of content so that people actually buy the things that they're getting you have to market their products you have to find the actual customers and then you have to do the integration so that the entire operational flow works so that is a challenge Mm. now why would anyone take that like why don't you just buy some inventory stick it in a warehouse and set it up well Mm. The difference is that you don't have any buyers in the team. You don't wrap any capital into inventory. You don't have any inventory sitting in a warehouse, so you're not eating warehousing costs. So you are much more resilient in a sense because you don't have a single point of failure. Your points of failure when it comes to your supply chain is equal to the number of shops that you have on the platform. And so that is why this also genuinely is a tech play at the end of the day, because you're utilizing technology to streamline and automate a ton of operations that would then create a new retail experience, which may look the same on the top, but underneath is completely different to a traditional pure play retailer, where you are taking inventory risk, you are tying up a ton of capital, you have massive teams to buy things in um, and you still have like some of the challenges on the operational side as well. So it is just a fundamentally yeah. different game. One example where this like makes a ton of sense is when you start thinking about internationalization. So for us to expand into Germany, we didn't really have to build anything else. Like we were using exactly the same stuff that we had built in the UK. 
just used it for the German shops uh, and that worked. You know, the only things that we had to change was like new negotiations with logistics providers and all that kind of stuff. But the fundamental was fine. If I'm a UK brand and I want to start selling in Germany, a pure play brand, probably need a warehouse, post-Brexit as well, definitely need a warehouse, need a ton of other things uh, in order to be able to make that happen. So it becomes more costly as well. So that's covering the supply element. How did you generate that demand? Like, what was the route? Because True was obviously now really successful, generating tons in sales. How did you get that off the mark and how did you scale it? So we we tried a ton of stuff. Like, we tried um, Facebook marketing, Instagram marketing, all that kind of stuff. The only thing that really worked for us was around... Have you ever gone to a restaurant or a coffee shop and then seen, like beautiful plate and then turn it around and read the brand underneath mm. yeah yeah. apparently a lot of people do that right so they will go somewhere they will be like oh this is a pretty cool plate they will turn it around or like a mug or whatever and then the first thing they do is they go to google and they type the name of the brand and then maybe some characteristics of that plate or whatever now chances are that if it's like a smaller coffee shop like a really cool kind of vibe place mm. The chances are, especially back then, they would have plates and stuff from smaller independent brands that you don't find that much supply of. Applies also to things like Veya trainers. Back in 2015, no one knew about them. The, the ones with the V that everyone yeah, is wearing yeah. now, like no one knew, knew about them. But our shops, like we had the biggest supply of Veya trainers for sure back then because all of our shops were stocking them, right? So we really doubled down on that one, like that experience, like that's a high purchase intent experience. Can we get people that are doing that? And given we are getting the supply from the long tail, right? we can always be in the front of the curve when it comes to these things. So we started utilizing SEO, but we did use a lot of Google shopping as well. And like the biggest marketing channel by far was Google shopping, bidding on a product by product basis because it was in the long tail so we could get better uh, return on ad spend by kind of focusing on those. So yeah, like that was it. But then also when we started scaling more, like more and more we were pushing into paid marketing as well, for sure. Uh, but especially in that kind of experience. So the bet was always, these are people that are frequenting in the right places. They have identified something that is interesting for them and they want to buy it. And that object that they're interested in reflects the mindset that we are representing and we're good at. So potentially, if we can get that person to buy that, then they will come back for other unique finds that we are able to show them as well. So that, that was the entire thesis behind it. That's really interesting. Because what, what you've essentially done there is picked, like zeroed in on a particular buyer behavior that is like super mm. high intent that most people probably haven't realized or picked up on. Something that we did really when... Um, so obviously, like two years ago, TikTok started to, to blow up everywhere. People, especially yeah. in lockdown, spending hours and hours going through TikTok. And something that started to happen was a trend where people were like, TikTok made me buy this because it was almost like word of mouth marketing. People were recommending products to each other. And we, we saw this, and that's now one of our leading sort of spearheads with our clients where it's um, we, we build ways to make that happen for clients. Um, and it's mm. it's probably one of the – you seem to have picked up on a really powerful thing there where if you zero in on a certain way or a new way in which people – are going around their purchase or certain purchase behavior that's not been picked up that's really high intent, you can probably scale really well. Because, um, yeah, there's it's, it's got to be more cases of it. I think the learning there is also, though, that 
that behavior may exist now and may exist in a year mm. as well, but you, you constantly have to stay fresh and, and keep thinking about what are those new, like what are those buying behaviors that we haven't looked at yet? Right? Like what are the things that, for example, live shopping, right? Like is that now something that is coming over to Europe? In what degree? What is that next thing? Like Truva, we just launched um, two weeks ago. We did our first live shopping event in our app. Uh, where we had like five of our best products plus the latest Truva exclusive. Uh, just a 15, like 15 minutes short kind of thing. Uh, but it was pretty cool. And there were some people joining it. So it's, it's like, okay, how do you stay in the forefront? How do you find those, those places before they get crowded? Because Google Shopping is very crowded now. So is, is that, what is that next thing? And, and I guess that's part of your culture as well. Like how do you ensure that people have that freedom and that space to look at those new things. And that's something that I feel that I think as a, as a founder CEO, like I never managed to create that space for my team because we were always kind of like too far into trying to solve the now and yeah. not giving enough space for people to solve the six months and 12 months. Um, but hey, learnings. Speaking of learnings, also defining moments throughout your career, you've been doing this for a very long time. I wanted to ask about specific moments throughout your career that maybe really stand out to you. Like you mentioned earlier that there was lots of hard decisions that you had to make. Mm. I think it would be interesting to hear from you just the way that things appear to be going at the moment. By the time that this podcast comes out, there might be some stressed out business owners. What mm -hmm. were some difficult moments for you throughout your career and how did you overcome those moments? I guess that there are points of stress, but that stress is, is a positive stress. You know, like every single Christmas <laughs> for the last <laughs> 10 years, uh, at least the last nine years, you know, like it that is stress you know like all of a sudden your volumes jump like crazy everything is starting to break apart like fall apart you have to have like uh, a plan b c d and, and it's still gonna go south somewhere um but that 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 is like that's beautiful you know that, that that's good so that's that's why you do this kind of thing then there's stress that you know, teaches you things uh, like running out of money and all that kind of stuff and, and having to figure out how you're going to make that next payroll and, and waiting for a new funding round to hit and you're not a, like there yet and all that kind of stuff, which I think not that many people talk about, but it's the reality for a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, if not, like at least people, my, myself and a lot of people around me, like, well, everyone I know of um, has gone through that kind of stress. Um, which is on the one hand it is mentally exhausting and like it is it is a type of stress you really don't want to have but on the other side it teaches you a lot about like yourself and your responsibility and that you have a real impact on other people's lives by what you're doing and I think sometimes that gets forgotten right like you have employees you have shareholders obviously but also you have your boutiques 
like the shop owners and uh, your customers. Right? So you, you don't want to mess with, like you really want to stand up to the, to the uh, situation and make sure that everything goes through successfully. So you have those kinds of things. Uh, where you have to take hard decisions and make sure that uh, things progress and go to the next level and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think stress is just part of the, the game. And you, the other thing you learn is how to handle it, like how, how to decompress, how to ensure that you are making space for yourself as well. Uh, it can get lonely. <laughs> so you have to find, figure out, okay, so how do I, how do I now uh, kind of get some stress out of my system as well? Mm. Yeah. Do you have any decompression life hacks that you would want to share? I think anything for me, what works for me is anything where I'm fighting for my life so I don't have to think about a business. So like windsurfing, uh, like somewhere out in the water or like uh, climbing and stuff like that. That works for me because like that's the only time that I can actually shut down. Like I, I, I can't think about you know, that next uh, report or whatever. Uh, the only thing I think about is like surviving this thing I'm going through. So like that works for me, but I, <laughs> I think anything that where you can really focus on yourself and having some alone time, like properly taking some time alone and having the time to reflect with yourself, because at the end of the day, it's with yourself you have to deal with most uh, than anyone else. So. You have to be in a good place with yourself. If you're not in a good place with yourself, then everything else starts unraveling very, very quickly. Alex, I think you are the first person I've ever <laughs> I've ever met in my life who would avoid business stress by going and finding a life-threatening stress. That yeah, is... <laughs> no, that, that really helps. That helps <laughs> it really, really helps. That's brilliant. And then I was going to say, and on top of that, just the flip side of that, what would you say is your proudest moment? Ah, uh, yeah. The, the, the first one, one of our uh, shop owners reached out and she was like, I just paid my rent through the orders that I'm getting through Truva. I was like, this is cool. You know, like the most number one existential challenge for these guys is rent and rent increases. You know, like they shut down because of these kinds of things. They're fixed, but when you look at their PL, the fixed costs. Like rent is a big, big part of that. So that moment for me was significant because for the first time, like, of course, I knew that we were generating orders for customers and I, I, I was seeing that we were generating actual value for people. Like we were getting like some really cool messages from people all the way from Australia, having found something from a shop in London and having bought it, and we shipped it all the way to Australia to them, and they had a beautiful experience. That, that was cool. But when that shop came to us and was like, yeah, I've paid my rent through you guys, I was like, okay, this is, now, now I can see that we're actually generating real value here. That, that was, yeah, a really strong moment for me. And I think that's one of the moments that I will take with me, uh, whatever, wherever I, I end up, because uh, that was cool, that was cool. What do you feel like the biggest lesson that you would want to pass on to someone that you were mentoring, for example, or someone that's starting a business? What what would be the biggest lesson that you've learned that you'd want to pass on? That's, that's a tough one. Um, biggest lesson, the more you understand yourself, respect yourself, and believe in yourself, 
the better of a leader you're going to be as well. So take the time to invest in yourself. I think that is, that is by far the biggest learning for me. Make sure that you're in a good place first and then you can be there for others as well. And then you can also meet others. If you're not in a good place with yourself, then things are going to go south. So I would always say, make sure that you're always investing in yourself. And do you have any principles that you have followed throughout your career that have kind of guided you through your decision-making or tough moments throughout business? Are there any principles that you stick to? Yeah. So number one is every promise you make is debt. If you do not repay your debts, you will have a serious issue and it accumulates over time. So when you promise something, you have to either deliver on that promise or ensure ahead of time to inform people why you have not delivered on that promise and what you're going to do about it. That for me is the number one principle. Whenever I've been in a situation where I didn't do that for whatever reason, because I was stressed, because I had too much to do, because I was too busy and so on and so forth, those were the times where I, I wasn't okay with myself because I didn't do that. And, and that has a big problem, that causes big problems with your team. The other part uh, that I would say, the other principle is, it doesn't matter if you are wrong sometimes, but do the right thing the majority of the times. Like it's, it's important, like sometimes we penalize ourselves. Oh, every time I need to be in the office by like seven because I'm showing the right example and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's, a, that's a, an example that is bad anyways, but like, <laughs> Just make sure that like, if you're going to be late, you might be late to a meeting. It might happen, right? But do not, you have to be on time the majority of times. Just make sure that you do that. Like that, that is what creates the trust. That is what creates like those small kinds of interactions and things like that is what um, makes a difference over time. So make sure that the majority of your times you are where you need to be um, and you do the thing that you need to do. And then the third part, don't forget about having fun. We're not doing this. We're, and having fun means like actually enjoying the journey and enjoying the parts, you know? Like I enjoy building stuff. So like when we did the live shopping thing, I was like, yeah, like this, this is cool. Um, so that part, I think sometimes we lose it. Like we forget about it. And, and that's, that should be part of it, you know? Like if you want to have something that, if you're going to go down this journey, like, you should have fun doing it as well. Um, and for me, fun is not oh, go partying and all that kind of stuff. That's your sense of fun. Great. But like for me, it's more having fun while doing, uh, creating value for people, your team, whoever else. Like that, that, is, that is an important thing. Yeah. Oh, obviously the life-threatening sports as well. <laughs> yeah. Well. For sure. I've got one final question for you, which is um, every business person or founder that I've ever met has, well, should I say most of them have had a little black book of people that they rely on, whether it be for business advice, for life advice, or to compare notes and things like that. Um, is there anyone in your little black book that you've relied upon whilst you've been growing this business that you've gone to for certain reasons? Well, I mean, my COO, Dimple, she's a uh, shout out to Dimple. She She's been on my side since like the last five, four or five years. Uh, and like every time there was something that, that was the person that I could go to. <laughs> because she does have it, like she's built a business before, she sold a business before and all that kind of stuff. But also like 
that person in your team that inevitably can take all of the noise, uh, which you can't give to everyone else. But then there's there's been lots of people around me and and like um, f- from different industries, from both VC and, and startup world, that have given me a lot of advice on like how to kind of get to the next step. I'm obsessed with Atomic Habits lately. Uh, yeah. Like, I want to meet that guy. Uh, that that is an amazing, and I think it applies to a lot of what we've been talking about as well, and to company culture as well. So definitely something to look up. Uh, that's a little bit more actionable, I guess. That's awesome. I love that book as well. That was a game. I have to listen to everything on audiobook because I have real trouble actually sitting down. To yeah, read. me too. But yeah, that's a really, really good one. Alex, it was so good to have you on the podcast. Uh, you've shared so many life lessons and pieces of advice throughout that I think uh, people are going to really, really benefit from. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps. Thank you.